Adam's Archive. Hello, you beautiful people, and welcome to the Adams Archive. My name is Austin Adams, and thank you so much for listening today. On today's episode, we are going to be jumping into first what happened recently with TikTok and all these conservative influencers calling out all you young TikTokers out there for talking about even considering speaking about this document that must not be named, but I am me and I will name it and we will read it. And that is Osama bin Laden's letter from 2002, A Letter to America. Now, there was a ton of controversy that came out on TikTok about this, a ton of conservative uh, channels that are crying out saying, you should, you should be ashamed of yourself for even considering agreeing with any of his points. And I understand the sentiment, right? We have um, some wounds from that man as a great country. However, I think that kind of takes away from the point, right? If you're afraid to look at something in the eye, uh, then maybe that's more of a reason to address it head on. So we will read that together. And I believe personally, there is actually some valid points and hold your thoughts until I read it. Cause I think you might agree too. All right. Once we walk through that, we are going to then move on into what has been called a agreement on a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. We'll see how long that uh, lasts for and what the actual uh, the actual breakdown of the deal was, but we'll go into that together. After that, we will go into the Michigan Capitol enforcing its gun ban with artificial intelligence. We'll actually look at the name of this company, which is Zero Eye, and we will watch some of their advertisements. We will see what this technology actually does and talk about what the implications of that could be on your Second Amendment rights in the future where Big Brother knows exactly who's carrying and when. Following up on that, we will go into the situation with the U.S. Army, who has asked their troops who left because of the COVID mandate, come back, come back, we need you. Oh, that silly, that silly thing we did where we kicked you out because we wanted to mandate a, a experimental drug on your body and then not pay for the effects of it later. Oh, that thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't worry about that. Um, just, just come back, come back. So we'll actually read that letter together from the army that they issued. And then we'll talk all about the open AI drama that has been going down. Um, if you haven't heard about this, it is crazy. This shit's definitely going to be a documentary in like 10 years from now, five years from now, who knows, three years from now, if AI can put it together fast enough. Um, this was one of the wildest sagas that you've seen in modern business history. Okay, so we will talk about that. We'll walk through what the situation is. I am pretty astounded by the way that this went down. They essentially could have just dismantled a multi-billion dollar, probably the single most powerful entity in the prospect of the future of humanity as standing today over a weekend and over a split second decision, which was not very well thought through, which ended in 200 or I'm sorry, 95% of their employees threatening to leave and go to a different company. So we will actually read that letter today together too. Wow. We're reading a lot of letters. I didn't realize that. <laughs> then uh, last but not least, we will talk about the uh, president 
of of the libertarian president uh, of Argentina um, that was recently elected, and he has some wild moments, but I also have some some agreements with him, and I, they're calling him this far-right crazy guy because he's talking about the deep state and saying he wants to dismantle the overbloated government, and uh, so lots of interesting stuff. And then he went through the parade with a chainsaw, saying he's going to cut down government spending. So wild, dude, but I'm all for it. All right, guys, that's what I got. Go ahead and hit that subscribe button. Leave a five-star review. If you are watching this and not just listening, you'll notice that I you know, cut, cut some hair on top of my head. So uh, essentially uh, got uh, a uh, crew cut now. So, you know, if you see me on Instagram, I might look a little bit different than, than you saw me before. All right. That's what I got for you guys. Subscribe, leave a five-star review and yeah, let's jump into it. The Adams Archive. All right, all right. The very first topic that we are going to discuss today was the recent document from Osama bin Laden, which went viral on TikTok. Now, there was over 9 million views mentioned, but TikTok tried to diminish it in a recent uh, recent note, I believe it was on Twitter even, or X now as the kids call it. Uh, but I digress. Let's jump into it. This is a letter that was written by Osama bin Laden in 2002, which was a letter to America. Now, in the way he that he breaks down this letter, it's, it's hard to argue with some of the thoughts that he, the way that he portrays the United States. And so we'll read that full letter together. But first, let's read this, which breaks down how this all went down and why this even came to fruition, because I never read this document until I heard about this. And the way that I heard about it was all these conservative influencers that were coming out and saying, how dare you, these young kids coming out here siding with the terrorists? How dare you read this letter? How dare you say that you agree with any of his points, that he had valid opinions? How dare you? And we go back to this this idea of of the good guy and the bad guy, right? And this has been a theme more recently in the Israel and Palestine and Hamas conflict for me, which has been reconciling with the fact that we've almost always been told, whether it be through Hollywood, whether it be through music, whether it be through plays and books and everything that we've ever been told is that there's a good guy and that there's a bad guy. And that philosophy, as I've come to know it now today, is generally flawed. And the reason that I say that is it's far more complicated than we're giving it credit, right? There's generally not just a good guy and not just a bad guy. Right. There's absolutely people who do acts of malevolence and, and horrific, atrocious acts in the name of being a terrible person and just inflicting pain on people. That is true. That is factual. But majority of the time that you see these national and, and world stage conflicts, it's generally not the case. Most of the time, what you'll find is both sides think that they're the good guy. 
right? And not just both sides is this radical extreme side of things on the far, far terrorist organizations. It's not just them. It's the people behind them, the general population. They have some agreeance with these people that there's a good guy and there's a bad guy. And and so I think the only way that we reconcile and we start to actually pull the curtains behind the military industrial complex is by by recognizing that it's not that simple. There's not generally a good guy and a bad guy. This isn't and even when you look at the old western, you know, westerns where they try to portray it, you know, there's cowboys and there's Indians and those are the savages and we're the upstanding, you know, uh enforcers of the law. Right. It's again, it's just generally not that simple. And you and, and as you start to take this framework and, and start to untangle the programming that you've been given, which is that there's, again, a, a, a good guy and a, a bad guy. As you start to untangle that, you can almost go back through almost any conflict in history. I say almost almost for a reason, but you can almost go back and look at any framework, any any conflict, any large scale war, any and you start to pull on some of the threads like, okay, there's a, there's an idea in debate and, and in, uh, I, I guess, I don't know what, what to classify it as, but there's the idea of steel manning within an argument, which is essentially if I was taking the, the opposing individual or opposing forces position and trying to be as generous as possible and trying to make the most compelling argument for their side of the argument for for them being the good guy and me being the bad guy in this instance how would i do so how how would i cr- take critical thinking and how would i critique my own position and and if you can do that right if you can actually steel man the argument and and look in, at the the conflict or the situation or the debate point that you're arguing and say okay if i had to take their position if I had to steel man the case that X, Y, and Z was the good guy, and now I'm the bad guy, how would I do that? And if you take that into the equation, you start to see that, okay, maybe there are some compelling opinions on maybe why we shouldn't be in this conflict to begin with, right? And maybe it's a sign of peace rather than a return of fire in some instances. Now, again, it's not to say there's not there's not reasons for war at, at certain points and for certain reasons. And if, if we are going to say that, you know, in the instance of Israel versus Palestine, I would much rather them come out and just say, hey, we're taking our land back. Almost the same way, you know, that, that they they tried to frame that as what it was for Russia, right? Russia not wanting Ukraine and, and NATO to infringe on their territory or at least within the immediate vicinity of it. They even tried to go, oh, they're colonizing Ukraine. It's like, Okay, that's that's not really what's happening here. So even if we were to be generous within the Israel and Palestine uh, conflict and say, okay, they're doing this as a response and not just to colonize the area, which it seems more and more likely that they're just trying to take that area over. However, we'll get into that ceasefire a little bit later in here. But 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 my point in this is that when you go back and you start to do those unwa- that unwinding and, and start to take that steel man argument and, and look at some of the things that have happened in history, whether it be to the United States or by the United States against other countries or individuals or uh, organizations, you can start to 
at the very least, steel man your argument. If you want to say that the United States is the good guy and every other country we've ever been in conflict with is the bad guy and you want to die on that hill, you better you better be able to steel man that argument. And if you're not, you're just blindly following a religion, right? You're, you're not you're not even reading the textbooks, right? You're just blindly having faith that, oh, daddy has my back, right? Daddy government knows all and, and is is essentially, you know, giving blind faith into that institution, which we already know is corrupt. So whether you're right or you're left, you should think critically about these things and go back and, and start to pull on those threads. And that's what we'll do here today. So on that note, this comes from Time Magazine. And the article title is Why Osama Bin Laden's Letter Went Viral. Now, within this letter, he mentions Palestine several times. Okay, and I'll, I'll share this with you. So if you're on YouTube... You'll actually be able to see what we are looking at here together. If you're not on YouTube, you can always join us over there. And it's just the Adams Archive. So if you type that into YouTube at the very top, you'll be able to see what we're looking at. However, let's move on. It says, two decades ago, Osama bin Laden, the Al-Qaeda leader behind 9-11, it says, you know, probably also next to the three-letter organizations, laid out his attempt, uh, his attempted justification for the attack against the U.S. that killed nearly 3,000 people in his letter to America. This week, that same letter went viral on TikTok among a new generation, many of whom are debating the Israel-Hamas war and the role played by the U.S. for some, a big part of Bin Laden's justification. American support for Israel's occupation of the Palestinian territories and what the U.N. deems a violation of international law resonates with what's going on now in the Middle East, leading them to renew calls for a Gaza ceasefire. In one video, which was live on the app at Thursday afternoon with more than 900,000 views, a TikToker made the claim that everything we learned about the Middle East, 9-11, and terrorism was a lie. Others on social media have criticized the video, sympathizing with terrorists and legitimizing violence. In a statement posted on the next on Thursday, TikTok said, content promoting this letter clearly violates our rule in supporting any form of terrorism. We are proactively and aggressively removing the content and investigating how to get it on, how it got onto our platform. So let's watch this video. Let's see if it's actually still there. It might not be anymore. If they were removing all of it. Yeah, and there it is. It's gone. Who knew? Censorship for the not win. Uh, in a statement posted on X on Thursday, TikTok said, oh, we just read that. The company also says that the content did not reflect a widespread trend, but rather just a few posts on the platform. The number of videos on TikTok is small and reports of it trending on their platform are inaccurate. This is not unique to TikTok and has appeared across multiple platforms and the media. Views on video shared by the hashtag Letter to America had over 14 million views on Thursday, CNN reported, but as of Thursday afternoon, the phrase could not be searched on the app due to guideline violations. This isn't the first time that TikTok has faced controversy for what's been shared on the app. The company has responded to Republican criticisms on the platform being biased towards pro-Palestinian content by pointing to polling that shows younger people are more sympathetic to Palestinians. While tens of thousands of people recently publicly showed their support for Israel in the U.S. condemned anti-Semitism in France, hundreds of thousands have taken to the streets in pro-Palestinian protests around the world calling the ceasefire to protect civilians in Gaza since the start of the war on October 7th. Okay, now we have context. Now, where I originally went to search for this was The Guardian. And if we go look at The Guardian's website, which we can do right now, the document was originally set here on uh, November 15th of 2023. It was removed. It was originally placed on this by on Sunday, November 24th of 2002. 
So 21 years later, they decided that, oh, now this is dangerous for people to read because, oh, they're actually reading it. So you can actually find this document and I will keep it in the, uh, I'll actually send this out. So if you're on my Instagram, go to at the Austin J Adams. So the Austin J Adams on Instagram. And if you comment on my most recent video and some of my other videos that will be about this after I get some of this content out, I will send this letter to you. Okay. So let's go ahead and read the letter, the letter that must not be named according to TikTok and the guardian. Here it is. All right. It says page one in the name of God, the compassionate, the merciful to the American people. Peace be upon those who follow the righteous track. Hereafter, the subject of my talk to you is in the overwhelming control of capital, money, and its effect on the ongoing war between us. I direct my talk specifically those who support real change, especially the youth. I say from the onset, your former president warned you previously about the devastation or the devastating Jewish control of capital in about a day that would come when it would enslave you. It has happened. Your current president warns you now about the enormity of capital control, and it has a cycle whereby it devours humanity when it is devoid of the percepts or the precepts of God's law. It says in parentheses, Sharia. The tyranny of control of capital by large companies has harmed your economy as it did ours. And that was my motivation for this talk. Tens of millions of you are below the poverty line. Millions have lost their homes and millions have lost their jobs to mark the highest average unemployment in 60 years. Your financial system in its totality was about to collapse within 48 hours had the administration not reverted to using taxpayer monies to rescue the vultures by using the assets of the victims. As for us, our Iraq was invaded in response to pressure from capitalists with greed from black gold, and you continue to support the oppressive Israelis in their occupation of our Palestine in response to pressures on your administration by a Jewish lobby backed by enormous financial capabilities. Hmm. Okay. So let's break that down a little bit. We start from the very beginning, and he talks about the Jewish control of capital, right? Your former president warned you previously about the devastating Jewish control of capital. This has been a pretty consistent conversation, right? Surrounding the control of media within media about the control within Hollywood and news corporations. And so this is in line with some very recent conversations that people are having. And, and that probably leads to why this had some effect of ringing true, especially when you bring in something like Palestine and the conflict and him referencing that occupation all the way back 21 years ago. So now what he says is the tyranny of control of capital by large companies has harmed your economy as it did ours. And that was my motivation for this talk. Tens of millions of you are below the poverty line. So now he's calling out the, the lack of care from our government surrounding people of low income, surrounding people who are homeless, surrounding, you know, talking about the financial system in its totality was about to collapse within 48 hours had the administration reverted to had not the administration reverted to using taxpayers' money to rescue the vultures by using the assets of the victims. Essentially saying that the banking corporations, the banks, all lever all, when they went bankrupt, they essentially took taxpayer money and then utilized that 
to bail the banks out when the people who suffered the most from that was not the organizations, it was the individuals who banked with them, right? So he's saying your own government used your money to help the people who oppressed you to begin with. As for us, our Iraq was invaded in response to the pressure of capitalists, then talks about their greed for black gold, meaning oil. And you continue to support the oppressive Israelis in their occupation of our Palestine in response to pressures on your administration by a Jewish lobby backed by an enormous financial capabilities. Now, what we look at there is, is the discussion surrounding uh, the, the fact that the and you continue to support the oppressive Israelis in their occupation of Palestine in response to pressures by your administration. Okay. So what what we can get into from that is is realizing that this has been a long-standing issue that has been bubbling below the surface for a very long time. Right? This discussion around the powers that be, the the individuals that we know, the the you know, however many families that you know control a massive amount of wealth, right? You want to get more into that? Go back to the episode that I did on uh, the creature in Jekyll Island, which is a great book that was written surrounding the end of the gold standard and the rise of the Federal Reserve. Now go back and look at who the people were that were involved in that conversation. I believe it was 13, 12 to 13 families that were on a private train together. And essentially, on Jekyll Island, which is a small island, came up with the idea of the Federal Reserve and then implemented it perfectly. And they now control all of the world as a result of controlling the largest corporation or the largest country's capital, being able to essentially print money at will with no repercussions to themselves and just to the American people, right? In walks inflation. So now it goes on to say that an observer of the policies of the new administration relieves or realizes that the change is tactical and not strategic or strategic. It does not at all agree with this, the change you seek. There are very many indicators of this, especially concerning important matters related to your own security and economy, particularly the ongoing war between us. The previous administration was successful in implicating you in the wars against us under the premise that they are necessary for your security according to the promise that it would be short and would finish in six days or six weeks. Six years has passed, and that administration is gone without realizing the victory. The man calling for change promised you victory in Afghanistan and set a time for withdrawal. Before the end of the set time, uh, Patrius from the previous administration came and asked for an extension of six more months. If it was the six-day war that started by President Bush and six years have not enough to, uh, has not been enough to finish it, then the wise men should question how long would a six-month war take and whether you would be able to fund a war that requires a large amount of money that weakens your economy and your dollar. Interesting. Okay. So... What he's saying there is essentially that they said this would take six days. Now they said it was six weeks. Now they're saying it's six years, right? And, and how much are you willing to sacrifice as a country of your financial stability as a nation by simply coming over here and looking to go after our oil, which, you know, we go back to the weapons of mass destruction conversation, which, you know, were never found. 
Okay. So moving on here. Uh, so, so that's interesting to me. It's like the amount of people that are now realizing that there, there's some, some cracks in the armor, right? That, that the, the great nation that we were told that we were brought up as patriots for that, you know, I myself joined the military to defend, right? Maybe there's some questions that should be asked about whether or not we should be in these wars. And you guys know, if you listen to me enough, that I'm at this point, there's very little you could do to convince me that we should be at war with essentially anybody unless we're specifically defending our home territory, which nobody's encroached upon the United States in Lord since the, the British. So moving on. This says, for, for Obama to leave one-third of its soldiers in Iraq and the statements from his administration about this, especially from Adorno about the possibility for Obama's ordering the return of the forces he took out of Iraq, it would have been better for him had he uh, disagreed with the ethics of the previous administration and adopted the truth as a friend and told you that he would not withdraw from Iraq, which may not serve the U.S. interests, but it is in the interest of the large corporations. Right, so he's talking about the war machine right? He's talking about the military industrial complex. It serves, doesn't serve the US, but it serves the large corporations, meaning the same corporations that we know own all the other corporations, the same corporations who own all of the politicians, the same corporations who own all of the military companies like Raytheon, or at least have the largest share percentage within those companies. Says the course of these policies of the president administration in several areas clearly reveals that whatever whoever enters the White House, even with good intentions to safeguard the people's interests, is no more than a train operator. His only task is to keep the train on the tracks that are laid down by the lobbyists in New York and Washington to serve their interests first, even if it's counter to your security and economy. Any president who tries to move the train from the lobbyist tracks to a track for the American people's interests will confront very strong opposition and pressures from the lobbyists. Your president described the decisions by the court in favor of corporations to intervene in the political arena as a victory, but it is not for the American people except for the big corporations. Okay, so now what he's saying is that your president is controlled. No matter how many how, how good of intentions he has, if he goes to fight the machine, if he goes to do what's in the best interest of the American people, he will be met by the corporations, right? So that's why when people are saying, oh, there's merit to this, yes, there's absolutely some merit to this. Our government has been commandeered by large corporate entities that have the only best interest of their entities making more profits. And generally, the best way to do that is by siphoning it from the people, not by serving the people's best interests. And we've talked about this. Our, our system is fundamentally flawed. Almost everybody who goes in with good intentions gets spit out or ends up with 13 indictments before they go for re-election. We exactly saw that play out with Donald Trump. The entire machine, all the news companies, all the 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 entire entirety of Hollywood, all of the the journalists that that were a part of any actual legitimate organization, all of them conspired. Even the FBI and the CIA did the same thing with the letters that they signed about the Hunter Biden laptop, right? 
It says, the course of the the course of the policies of the president administration in several areas clearly reveals that whoever enters the White House, even with good intentions, to safe to safeguard the people's interests, is no more than a train operator. His only task is to keep the train on the tracks that are laid down by the lobbyists. Hmm. Even if it's counter to your security and economy. Now tell me you disagree with that. Because I, I will argue that point with you all day. There's no doubt about it that it is right and that it is also a right for the administration to support the oppressive Israelis for the continue. Let's, let's get context. I think I maybe skipped something. Um, it says, there is no doubt about it that it is a right and it is also a right for the administration to support the oppressive Israelis for the continued occupation of our land and the killing of our brothers, marking a victory for the Jewish lobby. The president was not able to defend you against the security and economic loss. The way for change and freeing yourselves from the pressure of lobbyists is not through the Republican or the Democratic parties, but through undertaking a great revolution for freedom. Not to free Iraq from Saddam Hussein, but to free the White House and to free Barack Hussein so he can implement the change you seek. It, is not, it does not only include improvement of your economic situation and ensure your security, but more importantly, help him helps him in making a rational decision to save humanity from the harmful gases that threaten its destiny. Hmm. Let's read that again. So what, what he's saying there again, the way for change and freeing yourselves from the pressure of lobbyists is not through Republican or Democratic parties, but through undertaking a great revolution for freedom, not to free Iraq from Saddam Hussein, but to free the White House and to free the president so they can implement the change you seek. Free them from who? Free them from the lobbyists. Free them from what lobbyists? Well, in what he's referencing here, he says the Jewish lobbyists, the individuals who own those large corporate entities, who control a portion, a large portion of Hollywood and the news entities, right? So again, and this is far different than when everybody wants to ring the anti-Semitic bell, it's like nobody's saying anything about the religion and nobody's saying anything about the, the people who are in those areas who hold the title of being Jewish. No, it just so happens that the people that we're discussing here have a Jewish background, have Jewish blood running through their veins and are from that origin. It does not mean anything against the peoples themselves. It means that there is a large portion of people who also hold these characteristics that is what they push their agenda through. Okay, so it's like, it's very important to make that distinction. No, it is not all Jewish people that are running Hollywood. It is not all Jewish people that are controlling the White House. It is not all, no, it has nothing to do with the fact that they are Jewish or their beliefs in their religion or where their origin is from. It has to do with that, there is a small, very small, like handful of, of people and families in power that all have similar characteristic that unites them, which so happens to be that cultural background. So everybody crying anti-Semitic when you say, oh, don't bomb Palestinians or don't agree with the fact that you know there is a strong Jewish lobby, it's like the, 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 you're missing the point. Love Jewish people. Love all my people. I have nothing against 
really any class or group or culture or background or ethnicity or race or religion. <laughs> it's like that to me is such a low frequency beta, uh, uninteresting perspective to have that has just no value. There, there is no reason to have any distinction between people and, and, and say this group is this thing. No, but there is a way to categorize people based on that. And when a small group of people who hold those powerful positions hold the, that uniting culture, then it's going to be referenced, which is important to make a distinction of. Okay. Moving on. The British military uh, governor in the United States used to have the right to appoint judges and mayors. Similarly, the corruption is deep and rooted now in all the higher authorities, thus giving authorities over to these officials or these offices to corporations. Hmm. Subsequently, the higher court adjudicated their support of political financing by corporations under such circumstances. Now he's talking about the lobbying. Reading the book by the intellectual Thomas Paine helped your fathers in the revolution against the oppressors. It is useful for you to read it under the current similar circumstances. You are in need of people like Thomas Paine to publish books pointing out the similarities between the two phases, and that will have a similar effect. You are also in need of men with courage and initiative like those of your forefathers at that time when they refused to allow one company to harm the interests of the United States, a company that had a monopoly on tea and its prices. Talking about the Boston Tea Party, right? Talking about the, um, the what is it, the, the Indian Tea Company or whatever it's called. <laughs> I have to look that one up. Um, forget the, the uh, God, what's the name of it? Um, that's so stupid that I can't remember that. Let's see. The, the East India Trade Company, is that what it is? Pretty sure that's what it is, the East India Trade Company. Um, yeah, the East India Company. That's what it was. Thank you. At least I got it right. I, I got there eventually, guys, before even Google tell, told me. And you can reference the YouTube video to see it. <laughs> um, all right. So it says, uh, yet there are now many companies that endanger the United States economy, which continues to be vulnerable to collapse. And they also formulate the policies for the White House. They threw hundreds of thousands of soldiers against us and have formed an alliance with the Israelis to oppress us and occupy our land. That was the reason for our response on the 11th. Palestine has been under occupation for decades. Now, what he's referencing there is obviously September 11th. Now, obviously, that's obviously not a justification to commit acts of terrorism against random civilians, which has been the theme this whole year with the Israel and Palestine conflict. So again, don't agree with that. It's a horrific way to respond to this. The way that you respond to this is what this letter was attempting to do. Just do it more effectively. Because the fact that nobody read this, now all of a sudden people are reading this and now there's value to it. Hmm. Anyways, it says, uh, Palestine had been under occupation for decades and none of your presidents could talked about it until after September 11th when Bush realized that your oppression and the tyranny against us were part of the reason for the attack. Then he talked about it, the necessity for two states. Obama is trying to address the issue with the same solutions, suggesting by his predecessors, they are quilting fruitless solutions not of concern to us. If you want a real settlement that guarantees your security in your country and safeguards your economy from being depleted in a manner similar to our war or, or attrition against us and against, or I'm sorry, 
similar to our war of attrition against the Soviet Union, then you have to implement a roadmap that returns the Palestine, the Palestine land to us, all of it, from the, siver, or the sea to the river. It is an Islamic land not subject to being traded or granted to any party. In conclusion, be assured that we do not fight for mere killing, but to stop the killing of our people. It is a sin to kill a person without proper justifiable cause, but terminating his killer is a right. You should be aware that justice is the strongest army, and security offers the best livelihood. You lost it by your own making when you supported the Israelis in occupying our land and killing our brothers in Palestine. The road to safety starts with the stopping of aggression. And again, the way to combat aggression is not more aggression, and the way to stop people from killing your people is not by killing their people. So fundamentally disagree with him on that. Palestine should not be seen. And, and even in his own argument there, he says that it is a sin to kill a person without proper justifiable cause. Okay, 3,000 people on 9-11 that you killed without proper justifiable cause, regardless of the, the country that they lived within. Palestine should not be seen captive, for we will try to break its shackles. The United States shall pay for its arrogance with the blood of Christians and their funds. Peace be upon those who follow the righteous track. All right. So again, fundamentally disagree with a lot of what he says there, but there is merit to some of the points that he makes surrounding lobbying, surrounding our president not being in control regardless of good intentions. Several things that he said there that, that holds true in the awakening that we've seen over the last three to four years. So when you see all these people shouting at, you know, saying that anybody who reads this and agrees with any of the points made that they're a terrorist, it's no, that you're missing the point. And we probably, if you hadn't already gotten to this point where you realize these things without reading a letter from Osama bin Laden, like maybe you should do that first. And there's far better ways to probably get to this point from far more intelligent, far less polarizing, far less bloodthirsty people than Osama bin Laden. So there's that. Like you could definitely get this point across without having to hear it from him. But that that you see the censorship. You see the people coming out and calling you know, everybody a terrorist who reshares this or says that there's any merit to some of the points that he made about the occupation. And so I just wanted to get that out there. I, I think it's a value to actually read through these things and not just hear the headlines and just assume that everybody who makes any point about this is siding with a terrorist organization. Because again, I fundamentally, fundamentally disagree with the acts that were committed on behalf of this ideology. But that doesn't mean that there's no merit to some of the points that he made about the United States of America being flawed because it is. And if you disagree with that, you're very likely brainwashed <laughs> at this point. All right. All right. So the next thing that we're going to discuss is that Israel and Hamas have agreed to a temporary ceasefire for humanitarian purposes that include a hostage release deal, which has come from Fox News. Let's go ahead and read this article where it says the Israeli government is committed to the return of all hostages home. Tonight, the government approved the outline for the first stage of achieving this goal. According to which, at least 50 hostages, women and children, will be released for four days, during which there will be a lull in the fighting. The release of every 10 additional hostages will result in an additional day of respite. 
The Israeli government, the IDF, and the security forces will continue the war in order to return all the hostages to complete the elimination of Hamas and to ensure that Gaza does not renew any threat to the state of Israel. The ceasefire was officially announced hours after Israeli and Hamas leaders said Tuesday that negotiations were in their final stages. Both sides ultimately agreed to their conditions. Qatari negotiators helped broker the agreement. Under the deal, Israeli's government has agreed to temporarily stop its pursuit of Hamas, including its ground invasion of Gaza and its airstrikes for humanitarian purposes. Also, Hamas has agreed to release dozens of hostages in tandem with, Israeli er, with Israel agreeing to release Palestinian prisoners on a three-to-one ratio. Fox News' Trey Yingst reported Hamas leaders would release one hostage for every three Palestinians that Israel releases from its prisons. Hmm. Hamas, so, so that means that Israel essentially has to have three times the amount of hostages slash prisoners. Hamas, which governs Gaza, took about 240 hostages from Israel during its terror attack on October 7th when it invaded Israel and killed approximately 1,200 people, mostly civilians. The terror group said that at the time that it took enough hostages, which included Israelis, Americans, and other foreign nationals, to free all Palestinians in Israel. Hmm. Interesting. So you'll see the first hostages come out over the course of Thursday. Netanyahu met with his war council Tuesday afternoon, then the security council, and then his full cabinet before the agreement was announced. Ahead of the meetings, he said he hoped there would be good news. Earlier Tuesday, Hamas leader Ismail Hanaya and Mark Rujev, the senior advisor to Israel's prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, openly said a deal was closed. The deal being, hey, we'll stop for three or four days and we'll, you know, exchange hostages. You know, for every one that you give us, we'll give you three. <laughs> um, okay, so not exactly what I was thinking. So not a long-term, this is not a long-term ceasefire. This is just a ceasefire for three or four, potentially five days where they release they're hostages together, and then Israel will go back to uh, leveling the city of Gaza, apparently. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's what it seems like. Okay, not exactly what I was thinking, but as you guys know, when things pop up and we have breaking news, you'll get it while we're here. Um, so again, this was Israel and Hamas agreed to a temporary ceasefire hostage release deal, including freeing three Americans. Now, the original headline of this made it seem like it was more of a longstanding agreement, which obviously it's not. So let's move on to our next topic, which is that the Michigan Capitol is going to enforce gun bans with artificial intelligence. There's a software that has been created that allows them to using video surveillance footage in real time to identify threats. And by threats, they mean anybody who's potentially carrying a weapon, whether it be lawful or unlawful. So let's read this article. It comes from uh, bridgemi.com. And the article says, Michigan Capital to enforce a gun ban with artificial intelligence. Now, to me, this signifies some dystopian stuff, right? What my concern around this would be is now that this has been created, you can't put it back in the box, right? You've opened the box. Now there is a software that will allow them to identify people who have weapons on them, whether it be lawfully or unlawfully, because it's all right to carry and bear arms. It is our right to conceal weapons. It is our right to open carry weapons where the laws allow. So now you can be punished for that. You can be approached by 
police and you can have this technology that will be implemented in God knows what way, right? We don't know how this is going to be used for sure. How, how do you make sure that this isn't going to be used to, I don't know, stop people from defending property or defending life at rallies when they're allowed to open carry, right? In walks Kyle Rittenhouse. To me, it's like this isn't the issue that I have is not making sure that we're more safe in our capital buildings. It's is what is the actual use case for this going to be right when you're talking about smart cities and things like that and the totalitarian surveillance and Michigan itself just put up 400, 400 cameras on one highway alone. 400 cameras Michigan just put up to surveil its own citizens in the name of stopping violent crime. How does 400 cameras on a highway stop violent crime? That's not what it's for. It's to surveil the general public. If you think that that data just stops and they're scrubbing through hundreds of thousands of tens of thousands of millions of cars flying by every single day to look for one, two, three, four people. No, there's no return on investment there, right? They want to surveil people. They want to know where you're going, how you're getting there. I challenge you to drive down the highway right now, drive five miles in any city without seeing a camera up in the sky watching you drive. It infuriates me. It's so frustrating that you can't even drive your car on a road that they built with your tax dollars without daddy government, big, big brother sitting there watching you tracking your license plate. This says authorities of the Michigan State Capitol are beginning to use artificial intelligence to detect any firearms in a bid to increase security amid a growing national wave of political threats and violence. Show me a, a, a recent violent gum crime at the Capitol and what justifies utilizing this software. In fact, why don't we use this software at school zones? Why don't we put this software outside of every single school in America? Instead of funding a is, Israel's war, instead of funding Ukraine's war, why don't we take this software and actually use it for some an imp, an implementation that people want? Because the implementation that people want is not going to Capitol buildings that already have security, armed security at that. Why not put it into school zones? Why not put a, a video camera on, outside of every single school that identifies threats that way? I'm cool with that because you shouldn't be open carrying by a school anyways. Company officials at the Zero Eyes firm announced the deployment Monday, saying Michigan is the first state capital in the nation to use its gun detection technology, which has also been implemented last year at Oxford High School in the wake of the mass shooting. Thank you. Um, the system, which also analyzes footage from existing video cameras to identify brandished or otherwise drawn firearms, represents the latest in the series of escalating security measures at the Michigan Capitol following armed protests in 2020. I'm sure you'll be fine. The Michigan Capital Commission earlier this year approved installation of metal detectors inside the building and implemented a full indoor gun ban, except for lawmakers with a concealed weapons permit, except for lawmakers with a concealed weapons permit. So, so the lawmakers get to protect themselves, but not the citizens who are there, right? Interesting. Um, commissioners last month unanimously approved the, the lease with Zero Eyes, a Pennsylvania-based firm, which expected to cost about $3,000 a month. The money will come from existing security funding, first proposed by Governor Gretchen Whitmer, who is the subject of a kidnapping plot by the FBI. 
by the FBI, orchestrated by the men who also discussed storming the Capitol. You mean the FBI agents? And also the people, I'm pretty sure they got released because it was entrapment. It's just another layer of protection, Rob Blackshaw said, an executive director of the State Capitol Commission. Our latest goal, as we've said from day one, is to decrease any potential of a mass shooting and increase our level of safety for the people who work here and visit here. The artificial intelligence system will tap into existing surveillance video at the Capitol, including inside the building and outside grounds when openly carried firearms are still allowed. Where openly carried firearms are still allowed. So again, if a gun is identified, images will be immediately reviewed by trained specialists at Zero Eyes, including military and law enforcement veterans, the company said on Monday. If those specialists confirm a threat, they'll send alerts and other actionable intelligence to Capitol Police in a matter of seconds, according to the firm. Hmm. So how do you identify a threat for somebody who's not a threat? Do they wear a, a red jersey? Do they, you know... Anyways, here's the video by Zero Eye, so you can see what this technology is all about and we'll go ahead and watch it together Zero Eyes is a team of former Navy SEALs and military special operations veterans teamed up with elite technologists with a mission to save lives. We use your existing video cameras, coupled with our artificial intelligence gun detection, to prevent threats rather than react to them. There is no better purpose right now and no more difficult problem to solve than mass shootings. We go over the existing security cameras at a building, so on the interior and exterior, at the entrances, exits, choke points, bottlenecks inside the hallways. So when a shooter walks up and they take out a weapon, Zero Eye System will pick that weapon up. And our military trained operation experts verify every detection before sending out alerts to local staff, security, and the local 911 center to get the alert to first responders. It takes about three seconds from the time a gun enters the frame of a camera to the time an alert is sent. So now they know what the shooter looks like, what type of weapon they have, you have an armed subject in the Southwest Hall. How many there are, and what was our last known location? First responders on scene have access to this information before shots are fired. That will allow them to go directly to the shooter and prevent more violence from occurring. Drop your weapon now! Drop the gun! Drop the gun! So we can really decrease response times and save lives. Turn around! So we're going to stop threats at first sight not first shot. Mass shootings are devastating. Current alternatives are reactive. We need a proactive solution that mitigates gun violence, provides actionable intelligence, reduces response time, ultimately saving lives, while at the same time respecting our privacy and rights. Zero Eyes is that solution. Save time, save lives. Interesting. So I, I don't disagree with the premise of of the application when it's in the context of school environments but literally probably only school environments uh, it just doesn't seem to me that there should be any other use case for this other than schools because when you put it in the context of government and organizations and, and what the potential is for this 
software to be leveraged nationwide when you have basically a surveillance camera on every single corner. Now, within three seconds of anybody ever having a weapon that they legally hold, according to our Second Amendment rights, they can be identified and immediately, immediately have authorities contacted for no other reason than lawfully carrying a firearm. Right. And like I said, you have Michigan putting out 400 cameras just on their highways alone with your tax dollars to surveil you. And for $3,000 a month, they too can make sure that you're not actually leveraging your rights as an American citizen. So, you know, when we talk about a, a surveillance state, that that's a terrifying application. And again, under the context of school shootings and this being leveraged within schools and the perimeter of schools, I don't have any problem with that. I think it's a great idea. I like the idea of proactive identification of threats. But it doesn't end there. It won't end there. And that's where I have a problem with it. All right. So that seems to me like, you know, again, I, I don't think that there's any way to remedy that. The, the cat's out of the bag. And obviously there's going to be military applications for this and, and government applications for this. But I, I don't think that we have to allow it, right? We can push back against our tax dollars being used for these things as long as the application is not being used in a way that is, uh, you know, useful to the people. And useful to the people, to me, does not mean the Capitol building. It, it doesn't, because they already have armed security there. And we, as, as the people in the United States of America, have a right to carry firearms. Now, if this was communist China, just imagine the applications of this in, in communist China. And that my friends, is coming to a city near you in the very near future, right? Oh, you you actually can identify a, a uh, concealed weapon, right, down the road. Maybe they can see people printing on the side of their waistband. Uh, and, and now all of a sudden it bumps your your social credit score, right? Like where where, do, where does this end? And this is obviously just just the beginning. So that that's more so the, the terrifying applications of this. All right, moving on. The next thing that we're going to discuss here is going to be that the U.S. Army asked the troops who they fired, who they gave dishonorable discharges to, just, just come back, right? The people that they got out of the military, right? The U.S. Army kicked people out of the military for not having the vaccine, for not getting the vaccine, for not agreeing with an experimental drug being injected into their bodies. Now... They're telling them to come back, come back. We won't even mandate that to you. And I think there's a bigger play at hand here. I don't think it's just as simple as them saying, hey, we're missing recruiting numbers. I think it's bigger than that. Um, I actually think the the app, the reason that they're doing this is to mitigate legal costs more than very likely anything. Um, so let's look at this together. This comes from the post-millennial and it says the U.S. Army asked troops who left over COVID mandate to come back as war looms. Now, I don't know if that's the reason why. Um, I, again, I think this might be more of a legal play than anything, but the United States Army is inviting, because if you're in the Army, you're not going to be able to sue the Army, right? But there could be a large class action lawsuit against the institutions that mandated this, especially when it was the federal government. The United States Army is inviting service members to return to the branch who had been separated over the refusal of the COVID-19 vaccine. This comes as the U.S. military struggles to uh, to achieve targeted recruitment numbers due to years of woke political activism, which has reportedly turned off its primary recruitment base. And you see this. You see, the I think it was the 
Air Force now doing special forces uh, videos for recruitment where it's all white men. <gasps> How dare you? How egregious. And could you imagine a, a, a military that was mostly occupied by straight white men who don't dress up as, you know, women on their weekends to shake their ass for dollar bills at a, a gay bar? <laughs> like, imagine the world. Uh, the United States Army is inviting its service members to return to the branch who had been separated over the refusal of the COVID-19 vaccine. The Army issued a recent letter to former service members informing them that they can apply to return to service following the recession of the vaccine requirement. The Army had enacted four separations for unvaccinated service members early last year and announced in early 2023 that they had rescinded the mandate for current service members and applicants. The letter uploaded to X reads, Dear Former Service Member, and I'll read it here verbatim for you. Dear Former Service Member, we write to notify you of new Army guidance surrounding the correction of military records for former members of the Army following recession of the COVID-19 vaccination requirement. As a result of the recession of all, or the rescission of so let's try that again. We write to notify you of the new Army guidance regarding the correction of military records of the former members of the Army following the rescission of the COVID-19 vaccination requirement. As a result of the rescission of all current COVID-19 vaccination requirements, former soldiers who were involuntarily separated for refusal to receive the COVID-19 vaccination may request a correction of their military records from either both or either or both of the Army Discharge Review Board or the Army Board for Correction of Military Records. Individuals may request a correction to military personnel records, including records regarding the characterization of a discharge by submitting a request to the ADB or the ADRB or the ABCMR online at said URL. Uh, individuals who desire to apply to return to service should contact their local U U.S. Army Reserves or Army Recruiter. To, for more information, individuals may locate an army recruiter by visiting that website. How about no? How about if you want to mandate upon my body a experimental, experimental drug that we now know caused harm to me, that you did not have my best interest in mind? You had the best interest in mind of pharmaceutical companies. You had the best interest in mind of saving political face to half of the country who wanted to you know, call on people to have separation of, of workforce and, and have people lose their jobs and lose their livelihood and, and not be able to even see their grandma in a hospital if they don't get vaccinated, right? Like that we went so crazy during COVID and now you see them walking everything back, even the army walking back the ability now to join again, now that they hit no recruiting numbers that they've ever, like the lowest recruiting numbers we've seen in a very long time in one of the most highest tension times in American history. So no, you have to, you have to look at this and take a stand and, and say this person, this entity, this thing did not. And obviously most people in the military know that the military does not immediately have their best interest in mind. Let's be very clear about that. Um, but and in this case, the only thing they had in mind was how do we how do we a make profits for the pharmaceutical companies, which is actually where vaccines became popularized to begin with. So we can we can touch on that fairly quickly, which is that the reason that vaccines became mandated even in schools was because the 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 penicillin manufacturers, which is where vaccines became very prevalent, was penicillin shots during World War II. 
penicillin because of World War II was used so often. And so the 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 people who came up with the penicillin shot, and I believe if you go back and look, it's it was Pfizer, and I have a book back here um, called Code Blue. See if that knocks over my whole thing here. This book, Code Blue, is a, is a tremendous read. It's Inside America's Medical Industrial Complex. And it goes back into the history. And I actually did a whole breakdown of this on the very first episode that I did. So go back and listen to the very, very first episode of the Red Pill Revolution podcast, which you can just find in the feed that you're on right now, um, where it talks about this and, and why the penicillin became such a prevalent drug and why it was mandated in schools was specifically due to the fact that they had built so many industrialized or in, so many uh, industrial plants to build penicillin that they, and I'll put this here for you guys, um, that they essentially needed to continue perpetuating that profitability. So instead, they instead of shutting down all their manufacturing plants for penicillin, they actually opened or they actually started to spend their money on lobbying uh, Washington to make it mandatory within schools that you now vaccinate your children. And the reason they were doing this for, for soldiers was because people were coming back with like gangrene and all types of shit in World War II. And I went into the military. When I went into the military, we call it a peanut butter shot. One of the very first things that you get is a big needle shoved in your, your ass so that they can inject you with penicillin for no reason at all, by the way. None of us were, well, maybe not none of us, but I wasn't sick when I went in. I didn't need penicillin, but they just give it to you because you're cattle. That's all you are to them is cattle. So when you talk about what, what, they, what happened here, you realize that it was far more about appeasing the pharmaceutical complexes that probably lobbied to make it mandatory within the military than it was about, you know, and, and who that helped at the very top of the military that makes these decisions, right? There's lobbying in that aspect too. Um, so I find it comical. Absolutely not. You showed your hand and we will not be a part of it. No matter how many cool, badass advertisements you put out showing straight white men, you showed your hand and now you just, you don't get the support. Um, and that was obviously a mistake. All right. And that leads us to one of our bigger discussion points today, which is a historical, historical blunder by one of the most successful companies of all time, which almost overnight collapsed an entire an entire industry, essentially. And we'll get to that right after this, which is the fact that you haven't subscribed yet. You haven't left a review because I see you. I know I look every week to see who did what. And I know maybe it seems like you didn't leave a review. Not last week, not this week, not yet. So what I'm asking you right now is stop what you're doing unless you're driving and then, you know, pull over. There's there's somewhere you could, there's a gas station right there. There's a McDonald's. Maybe there's a rest stop. Pull over right now. Be safe. Don't do it while you're driving. Go to Apple Podcasts. Go to Spotify. Hit the five-star review button. If you're on Apple Podcasts, go ahead and leave a note. That actually means way more than it does to just hit the five-star review button. Leave a review. Say something nice, what you like about the podcast. I would appreciate it from the bottom of my heart. All right. So let's get into this. OpenAI essentially almost collapsed overnight after the board fired Sam Altman. Now, if you don't know the back back 
story of Sam Altman. Sam Altman is the front face of Silicon Valley. He has been for a very long time. He was the head of Y Combinator, which is a startup incubator in uh, in Silicon Valley. And for a very long time, he was not very well known outside of Silicon Valley until more recently with OpenAI, he just he exploded in his celebrity. And he was just most recently, which makes me have some questions about this more recently, is the fact that Sam Altman was on both Joe Rogan and Lex Friedman not two weeks before this whole thing happened. So he gets one of the biggest celebrity moments and pushes of his face and his name just two weeks before he gets fired by the board and what is the worst decision-making ever by any company, literally Ever, as shown by the fact that 725 people the last time I looked signed a letter saying that if they don't reinstate him and fire the entirety of the board that made this decision, all 725 employees will go over to the same company that offered Sam Altman a position as the CEO of a new venture with an AI, which is Microsoft. And we'll read about that in just a second. So essentially, let's let's go ahead and let's dive into this article together, and I'll give you the very first thing, which is that OpenAI came out with this letter directly on their website as a blog post, and it reads, not what I wanted, and it reads, Chief Technology Officer Mira Maradi appointed interim CEO to lead OpenAI. Sam Altman departs the company. Search process underway to identify permanent successor. The board of directors of OpenAI that acts as the overall governing body for all OpenAI activities today announced that Sam Altman will be departed as CEO and leave the board of directors. Mira Maradi and the company's chief technology officer will receive or will serve as interim CEO effective immediately. A member of OpenAI's leadership team for five years, Mira has played a critical role in OpenAI's evolution into a greater AI leader. She brings a unique skill set. Understanding of the true company values, operations, and business leaders, and already have leads the company's research, product, and safety functions. Um, okay, who cares about that? Mr. Altman's departure follows a deliberative review process by the board, which concluded that he has not consist been consistently candid with his communications with the board, hindering its ability to exercise its responsibilities. So the reason that they state, which is so obscure and vague, and nobody seems to actually know the reason, and they won't come out with it, even after being threatened by all sorts of people within OpenAI, including the letter, uh, Mr. Altman's departure follows a deliberative review process by the board, which concluded that he was not consistently candid in his communications with the board. So because he wasn't candid with us, we're going to fire him. Okay, probably the worst decision ever. The board no longer has confidence in his ability to continue leading OpenAI. In a statement, the board of directors said OpenAI was deliberately structured to advance our mission to ensure that artificial general intelligence benefits all of humanity. The board remains fully committed to serving this mission. We are all grateful for Sam's many contributions to the founding and growth of OpenAI. At the same time, we believe new leadership is necessary as we move forward as the leader of the company's research product and safety functions. Mira is exceptionally qualified. Well, Mira was the CEO for approximately 24 hours <laughs> until they uh, instated uh, a man who used to be the CEO of Twitch and seems like a kind of off fellow, weird for this endeavor, uh, but we can get into that in a moment. Now, um, during this transition, you'll find that they had all sorts of crazy things happen in the wake of this, which is the fact that as a result of them outing Sam Altman, 
95% of OpenAI workers have threatened to quit OpenAI in a letter if Sam Altman is not reinstated as CEO. And this is further backed by the fact that Microsoft offered to match their salaries for anybody that moves over to Microsoft from OpenAI. Now, the interesting concept around this that has come out several times, which is that Microsoft could potentially acquire OpenAI for essentially zero dollars. I wonder if that's ever happened in the history where a large corporate entity somehow manages to acquire a company through the stupidity of the smaller company's board <laughs> and create such a whirlwind of shit. Now, this was even weirder because as of today, all of ChatGPT was down for approximately seven hours, which is longer than it's been down for the entirety of the time that I've known about it, which is almost a year now. Which tells me that there's zero probability, zero probability that ChatGPT being down today has nothing to do with this whole board situation or Sam Altman situation. It absolutely has to do with it. And what I would see happening is that there was, you know, this is pure 100% gold standard speculation for, for you. But <laughs> my speculation is that what might have happened here is it was essentially a hostage takeover. <laughs> this is my view of it anyways. What if they, what if they essentially said, we are not, it was a show of power from the employees, potentially my thought, complete speculation. Um, so probably completely inaccurate, but, but what if, <laughs> what if these employees, the 95% of disgruntled employees who said they were going to leave the company within 24 hours of the most large outage in ChatGPT history held the, the software hostage from the board members saying we are, we absolutely are not reinstating the software, not allowing our users to access it unless you do what we ask, which seems a little bit more believable when you understand that 95% of the company signed a letter saying they were going to quit and move to Microsoft just, you know, a few hours prior to this shit show happening, right? Kind of weird. Um, so let's go ahead and read this article together, which states... 95% uh, of the workers talks about the letter that was written. And here we go. The, the uh, article comes from Business Insider. And it says, Nearly all OpenAI staff members have threatened to quit unless all board members resigned and ex-CEO Sam Altman is reappointed according to the latest count of staffers who have signed a letter demanding his return. The number of employees who have signed the letter has been rising through the day on Monday and now includes nearly all of OpenAI's workforce of 770, according to a tally by a reporter at CBS News. The letter to the board, OpenAI employees, including CTO Mira Marathi, this, you know, interim CEO we just talked about, and COO Brad Lightcap said that the firing of Altman had jeopardized all of this work and undermined our mission and company, and that they would quit and join the ex-OpenAI CEO at Microsoft if the board did not resign. The letter was first reported by Wired on Monday and shared by tech journalist Kara Swisher online, who said that the list of signees is growing. And we can read that in just a second. Your conduct has made it clear that you do not have the competence to oversee OpenAI, the letter said. The letter's uh, signatories include OpenAI's chief scientist, Ilya Sutskiver, who posted on X that he deeply regretted being a part of the move to out Altman. Jan Lake, the co-lead of OpenAI's super alignment team with Sutskiver, 
uh, and posted on X, I think the OpenAI board should resign, words that appear to have become another rallying call to OpenAI staff. The letter on the board also said that Maradi, who was initially named the interim CEO, was also replaced against the best interest of the company. The letter to the board and the latest development after the weekend of the chaos and confusion at the AI startup. Late on Sunday, Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella announced that Altman and former OpenAI president Greg Brotman would be joining a new AI team at Microsoft after efforts by investors and current employees to bring him back as OpenAI CEO or as OpenAI CEO fell apart. OpenAI subsequently appointed Emmett Shear, a former CEO of Twitch and advocate for slower AI development, as its interim CEO. But the company's board has been dealing with an enormous backlash from employees over the way Altman's exit was handled, with several quitting to follow him to Microsoft and public displays of support being posted on X. In its initial statement announcing Altman's firing, the board said that they had not been consistently can- that he had not been consistently candid, and that it no longer had any confidence in his ability to run the company. Hmm. Wow. So there is that, right? And now we'll actually go ahead and we can read the actual letter here to give you more context. Um, but it, it, it touched on the major points right there. And it's pretty wild. Like to have that type of buy-in is unbelievably impressive. You don't get that type of loyalty in your own family. Like for most people, you're not going to get a 95% approval rating from your own family members, let alone getting that from such a large entity. So that speaks volume to Sam Altman himself, his character and his his buy-in as a leader that he has so many people willing to put their jobs on the line for something that they thought was done in malice and done unrightfully. And good on them for doing it, right? Um, pretty awesome stuff if you're looking at that. So, uh, and maybe this, I don't know if this is breaking news or anything. Let's see if this is an article coming out of here. This comes from yesterday. So, uh, yeah, not breaking news. Here we go. Here's the letter that came out and was signed by 725 of the 770 employees, which says OpenAI is the world's leading AI company. We have employees of OpenAI. We, the employees of OpenAI, have developed the best models and pushed the field to new frontiers. Uh, Our work on AI, safety, and governance shapes global norms. The advocacy or in the products we built are used by millions of people around the world. Until now, the company we work for and cherish has never been in a stronger position. The process through which we terminated Sam Altman and removed Greg Brotman from the board has jeopardized all of this work and undermined our mission and company. Your product, uh, your conduct has made it clear that you did not have the competence to oversee OpenAI. When we all unexpectedly learned of your decisions, the leadership team of OpenAI acted swiftly to stabilize the company. They carefully listened to your concerns and tried to cooperate with you on all grounds. Despite many requests for specific facts of your allegations, you have never provided any written evidence. So they haven't showed any reasoning why they would actually do this. There's obviously something that they don't want to be public here. They also increasingly realized you were not capable of carrying out your duties and were negotiating in bad faith. The leadership team suggested that the most stabilizing path forward, the one that would best serve our mission, companies, stakeholders, employees, and the public, would be for you to resign and put in place a qualified board that could lead the company forward in stability. Leadership worked with you around the clock to find a mutually agreeable outcome. Yet within two days, 
of your initial decision, you again replaced interim CEO Mira Maradi against the best interest of the company. You also informed the leadership team that allowing the company to be destroyed would be consistent with its mission. Hmm. That's a weird statement. You informed the leadership team that allowing the company to be destroyed would be consistent with the mission. Now, when you think of OpenAI's mission is to create a world of safe and effective AGI, an aligned AGI, AGI being uh, generalized artificial intelligence um, or artificial generalized intelligence, meaning something that is actually sentient. So something that has... Uh, um, is more than just inputs and outputs, actually has its own consciousness, right? So the idea that the fundamental mission of, of OpenAI was to create aligned AGI, meaning that something that isn't going to fundamentally destroy humanity immediately, right? Probably a good thing. So them saying that destroying the company would be consistent with the mission. So is the board saying that they believe that the AGI potentially has been created and potentially is unaligned or misaligned with humanity? That's an interesting statement to me. It says, your actions have made it obvious that you are incapable of overseeing OpenAI. We are unable to work for you, work for, or with the people that lack competence, judgment, and care for our mission and employees. We, the undersigned, may choose to resign from OpenAI and join the newly announced Microsoft subsidiary run by Sam Altman and Greg Brockman. Microsoft has assured us that there are positions for all OpenAI employees at this new subsidiary should we choose to join. We will take this step imminently unless all current board members resign and the board appoints two new lead independent directors, such as Brett Taylor and Will Hurd, and reestate Sam Altman and Greg Brockman. And again, 90 5% of people within the company have signed that agreement. That is so crazy. So crazy. And again, then we get into the fact that today, for almost seven hours, ChatGPT was inaccessible. So you want to put your tinfoil hat on. That was my tinfoil hat going on my head. You want to put your tinfoil hat on. I think they had ChatGPT by the balls. I think that they were using it as a leverage tool. And I think that maybe we'll see tomorrow what the outcome was of today's blackout. But only time will tell. Now, the next article that is surrounding this, and I have several of the, you know, the Twitter accounts of Greg Brockman, Sam Altman, Mira all the people involved in this. Open it up, but I don't know if there's too much value. There were some simple, initial, interesting tweets, but, you know, the whole AI team said, I love the open AI team so much. And that was, or well, that was Sam Altman. Then all these other people came out and said, essentially, and we can look at Mira's, which I believe would have, says, <laughs> Most confusing check drama ever. Um, a lot of people from the company were posting this one singular thing and everybody was just loving it and hearting it. And anyways, I digress. Um, interesting. And Mira, the interim one day CEO, 
it, which is even weirder because now all these people signing this, um, they all said OpenAI is nothing without its people, right? Which was retweeted by Sam Altman and Hearted and all this stuff. But she even came out after writing, signing that letter and, and they were kind of pumping up, even Greg Brockman, pumping up the use your voice thing for OpenAI. So that's like an interesting signal of maybe there's more going on here that we're just not seeing yet. And Sam Altman, uh, when this all went down, uh, no, no new tweets from him after this all happened, uh, but essentially um, posted a picture of himself where he had uh, basically was inside of OpenAI and had a guest badge on and said, first and last time I ever wear one of these. <laughs> and uh, people replaced it with a Uno reverse card because, as everybody else said, they outed Sam Altman, but then, <laughs> but then Sam Altman really kind of outed the board because he was the person with all the chips because he had actual buy-in and loyalty from his people, which the board did not. And this is like, from a leadership perspective in business, uh, it's really quite astounding to see somebody that can get that much buy-in. Um, imagine having your entire school, like 700 people, and, and having almost every single one of them like you. That's like almost unheard of, right? To not have more friction than that. Uh, and it's an interesting case study. And, and I think that, you know, there'll be a, a long time that business uh, business schools break down what happened here in its entirety and try to re figure out, you know, the inner workings of, of this as a case study. And Elon Musk goes on there and trolls. Are you going to use Google Meet again? <laughs> because what you found from this is that a company essentially acquired by or, or, or invested 49% of the company's shareholdings by Microsoft used Google Meet, <laughs> which is just hilarious. Um, there were some articles that came out today and yesterday, one being Sam Altman is still trying to return to OpenAI as CEO. It says Altman's move to Microsoft is in the done deal, and Ilya Sutskiver's flip to supporting Altman means two board members need to change their mind, and that's it. Um, interesting... A uh, quote from Sam Altman said, we have more unity and commitment and focus than ever before. We are all going to work together someday or another, and I'm so excited. One mission, one team. And another article says that Microsoft hires Sam Altman hours after AI rejects his return. That was a couple days ago. And then the next article says Microsoft offers to match pay of all OpenAI staff. And again, not sure what's going on with this guy's chin. That is like... A weird. Uh, this guy has like a landing strip on his face. <laughs> I'll show you this because this is just hilarious. Uh, this is a Microsoft uh, guy, I guess. I don't know. Why would you have that on your chin? Just completely. Uh, I don't know. Anyways, Microsoft is offered to match the pay of any staff who joined from the crisis ridden OpenAI. Sam Altman was controversially sacked. As CEO on Friday, leading to a job offer, and it's crazy that it's only Tuesday. Um, almost every staff member at OpenAI has threatened to leave unless he and co-founder Greg Brockman are reinstated. It is unclear whether Mr. Altman will ultimately join Microsoft, unless or in which is OpenAI's biggest investor so far. Uh, Evan Morikawa, an engineering manager at OpenAI, has claimed that 743 now out of 770 employees at OpenAI have signed a letter calling on the board to resign, with staff themselves threatening to leave if their demands are not met. In their letter, they claim that they have offered 
been offered jobs at Microsoft, something that company's chief technology offer, Kevin Stott, has now confirmed, telling staff that if they needed, they will be hired by Microsoft in the role that matches your compensation. Hmm. Interesting. And this is the tweet from Kevin Scott, which is at Kevin underscore Scott, which says to my partners at OpenAI, we have seen your petition and appreciate your desire uh, potentially to join Sam Altman at Microsoft's new AI research lab. Know that if needed, you have a role at Microsoft that matches your compensation and advances our collective mission. And I like how he matched it. He didn't say, you know, we're going to match it and give you a 5% raise. So it like really looked better on uh, Microsoft because of that, because they totally could have like just poached everybody at this time and be like, you know, you might as well jump ship because, you know, your company's dead anyways, essentially at this point, which is just so wild to hear about open AI when just five days ago, they were probably the most sought after investment in the world and had like a market value of like 45 billion dollars or something maybe even more than that at this point like it's unbelievable how quickly something can go sideways with just bad judgment right such bad judgment that they they had in this instance um it says the uncertainty about people's futures extend to mr altman with microsoft ceo telling cnbc that he might not be joining adding that he was committed to open ai and sam irrespective of what configuration Obviously, that depends on what the people at OpenAI staying there or coming to Microsoft. So I'm open to both options. Very interesting. Hmm. Now, this obviously obviously gets uh, deeper and deeper into the situation. But um, Emmett Shear, right? This is where some of the uh, Emmett Shear being the um, head of Twitch, who has been named the interim head of OpenAI. Uh, was a part of Y Combinator at some time. It says the, the pair crossed paths years ago when they were involved with startup investment program Y Combinator with a viral photo of them as part of the group spreading on social media. It says photo of Emmett Shear and Sam Altman when they were in the original 2005 Y Combinator class together. Wow, Sam Altman just barely aged. <laughs> I wonder who all was in this class here. It's such an interesting thing to see. Uh, just a group of people that you would never expect to just be unbelievably successful people. And I guess maybe this is truly what success looks like in today's world. Uh, wow, that's crazy. Um, here you go. I'll show you the picture. There it is. <laughs> the original class of 2005's Y Combinator. Um, and again, that was something that I had kind of brushed shoulders with in the past is originally had presented an idea to um, it was actually Sam Altman's assistant around the potential to uh, getting into uh, Y Combinator at one point with a startup idea that um, I had been working on uh, with um, actually my father at the time, which was really interesting. So um, interesting stuff. Here is uh, the rest of the article. If you want to go read the rest of it, it's from BBC. And again, it's titled Microsoft Offers to Match Pay of OpenAI Staff. It's probably one of the most recent articles, which was written at 11 o'clock today. And uh, you can catch yourself up to speed on all of it. But pretty crazy stuff to me. Wild, wild situation. Um, and probably the biggest thing that's happened over the last five days, by far, even compared to that, you know, 72 hour ceasefire that, you know, <laughs> all the news companies got so excited about. Here is the next one. So the um, the libertarian Melee pledges new political era after election win. Um, which for, uh, essentially let's go ahead and read this. This comes from Reuters. 
And it says, um, Argentina elected right-wing libertarian Javier Mille as is now president on uh, elected right-wing libertarian Javier Mille as his new president on Sunday, rolling the dice on an outsider with radical views to fix an economy battered by triple-digit inflation. Heard of that before? A looming recession and rising poverty. Mille, now this is really interesting because he's a self-proclaimed anarcho-capitalist. And if you don't know what that means, it means essentially that, you know, you want very, very minimum, like essentially zero government uh, intervention within almost everything. And you allow the market to dictate uh, where money is allocated, right? Like true capitalism, essentially. It's not anarchy in the way that it was framed back when we were growing up with like an A with a, a slash through it and a circle around it, which meant, you know, you're going to like burn down a building and smoke meth or something. <laughs> It's like anarcho-capitalism uh, is is actually a, a well-known and, and um, th- I don't know if thought out's the word, but uh, political ideology that, that a lot of people seem to start to agree with. And it's like when you're libertarian and you're hyper-libertarian, like almost want to rid the government completely and then just have capitalism take place and, and no government assistance programs. You know, there's like a famous video of... of uh, Javier Mealy just just sitting in front of a board with like the Department of Agriculture and he rips it off of it and he says gone Department of Infrastructure gone Department of this gone and like just <laughs> running. He's, he's a very eclectic um, ostentatious individual um, has some interesting energy about him and, and I don't know what's more interesting his energy or his toupee um, he, he very obviously seems to wear some sort of hairpiece. Uh, but aside, Mille, who rode a wave of voter anger with the political mainstream, won by a wider than expected margin. And, and this is probably more aligned with like Trump effect, I would say, right? Like to see the effect that Trump had in the United States and then see it kind of bleed over and that sentiment and that um, that collective consciousness across the world to see like, oh, maybe if, you know, changing up the system, shaking up the system with an outsider works for them, maybe it can do so for us. Now, I'm not sure if this guy's background is as prestigious as Donald Trump's, but who knows? He landed some 56% of the vote versus 44% for his rival. Uh, the model of decadence, when it has come to an end, there's no going back, Mele said, in a defiant speech after the result, which while also acknowledging the challenges that face him. We have monumental problems ahead. Inflation, lack of work, and poverty, he said. The situation is critical and there's no place for tepid half measures. In downtown Buenos Aires, hundreds of Mele supporters honked horns and chanted his popular refrain against the political elite, out with them all. As rock music played from speakers, some people set off fireworks as excitement spread. Uh, we came to celebrate this historic triumph, said Efren Viveros, a 21-year-old student from the Providence of Salta. I'm honestly ecstatic, they said. Honestly ecstatic. Hmm. All right. It's a good way to put it, right? And and just, just kind of like feel the mass energy of that country. At one time, when you go watch these videos of this parades and this man like legitimately running around with a chainsaw saying that he's going to cut off all of the government spending... And like this wild show uh, was pretty interesting. Um, and we'll, we'll watch that clip in just a second. But here's the rest of this article, which says. Which says that. Uh, Mille is pledging economic shock therapy. He plans to include shutting down the central bank, ditching the peso and slashing spending, potentially painful reforms that resonated with voters angry at the economic malaise. 
Miele is the new thing. He's a bit of an unknown. It's a little scary, but it's time to turn over a new page, said 31-year-old restaurant owner Christian, who voted on Sunday. Miele's challenges are enormous. He will have to deal with the empty coffers of the government and central bank, a creaking $44 billion debt program with the International Monetary Fund, inflation nearing 150% and dizzying array of capital controls. Some Argentines are, have characterized the vote as a choice of the lesser evil, fear of Miele's painful economic medicine versus anger of Massa and his Peronist party for an economic crisis that has left Argentina deeply in debt and unable to tap global credit markets. Miele has been particularly popular among the young who have grown up seeing their country lurch from one crisis to another. Perhaps not everything Miele says I could agree with but, or identify with, but he is our future. Miele represents a future for young people like me. Massa was everything that is wrong with our country. Miele's win shakes up Argentines, Argentina's political landscape and economic roadmap and could impact trade in grains, lithium, hydrocarbons. Miele has criticized China and Brazil, saying he won't deal with communists and favors stronger U.S. ties. Hmm. Interesting. Now, here's the video that we all have been waiting for. <laughs> At least I have, because I haven't watched the full thing yet. Um, Javier Malay won a convincing victory in yesterday's presidential election with a promise to sharply cut government spending and tackle the country's worst economic crisis in decades. Says he'll bring a chainsaw to the economy. In fact, he brought a chainsaw to many of his campaign rallies as a prop. <laughs> also, he cloned his dog. That's what he's known for. Ed O'Keefe uh, has this very strange story. He cloned his dog? A massive political shakeup in Argentina. Argentina. Javier Malay, far-right economist and television personality, joined the political fray just three years ago. Now he's in charge of the third largest economy in Latin America as it teeters on the edge of disaster. Porque hoy comienza la reconstrucción de Argentina. Malay rode to power on a wave of popular discontent over a stagnating economy with a 40% poverty rate and inflation nearing 150%. This woman says she supports Malay because she's looking for change in Argentina, a country she says has been suffering from years of decadence. He became known for his unorthodox showmanship during the campaign. That dude's wild. Wielding a chainsaw <laughs> to symbolize his war on government spending, threatening vital public services. Afuera! And printing a picture of a U.S. dollar bill with his face on it. Part of a widely criticized campaign to use the U.S. dollar as Argentina's currency. Uh... The self-described anarcho-capitalist has also advocated for eliminating the country's central bank. Malay's controversial tirades against the political class have drawn comparisons to neighbor Brazil's former president Jair Bolsonaro, as well as former president Donald Trump, who sent congratulations to Malay on Truth Social, saying he will make Argentina great again. For CBS Mornings, I'm Ed O'Keefe. <laughs> All right. There you have it, guys. So that will be really interesting to play out, to see as somebody who is a self-proclaimed anarcho-capitalist, to see them in a position of power, a libertarian. To me, it's what makes the most sense in politics is less government, right? And maybe not less government to the sense that there should be absolutely no foundational government whatsoever. And, and maybe there's a balance of that in anarcho-capitalism, but you know, there, there should be some infrastructure for protecting your borders, protecting your people from themselves and some, some other things like that. Uh, but essentially 
you know, in some social programs, again, not against all social programs, but the government, just like the United States, I'm sure there is just far over bloated. Most of the government is, the the government is essentially bad at every single thing that it's ever done. Almost ever. (laughs) Like almost a a 0% batting average on doing great things as a overall entity. Uh, So it'll be an interesting case study to see how it plays out. And on that note, guys, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate you from the bottom of my heart. I love you. I hope you have a great week. Uh, Look out for all my content coming out this week. It is at the Austin J. Adams on Instagram. Find me on Twitter since I'm just starting to use that again. Um, And everywhere the hell else that you can find me. Subscribe. Leave a five-star review. Have a great week. Thank you. Adams Archive.